Well, good morning again. I invite you to keep your Bible open to that passage that was just read for us this morning. I want to pause and pray, but before I pray, can I just say on a personal note how, I'll try to keep it composed, some composure, but how thankful, grateful Katie and I are for the, what, is, what has been an amazing outpouring of love and affection and concern for us as a family. And uh, y'all have been the the hands and the feet and the heart of Jesus to us over these last couple of weeks. Some of you that are visiting this morning, uh, you may not know, uh, it's been a big couple of weeks for the Wilson home. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I announced my resignation from the senior pastor role here to transition to another Christian organization, and um, uh, just a couple days later, found out that Katie has breast cancer, uh, which came so closely on the heels, we've been reeling from that, and of course, we didn't plan it that way. But God planned it that way, and God has loving design in this for us. We really believe that, and so we're trusting him for that, and, and super grateful for you all. You all have been the family of faith. You've been the body of Christ to us, so uh, so thank you. Thank you. Pray uh, her surgery is this Thursday. So we covet your prayers for that, that things would go without a hitch. She'll start chemo uh, six weeks after that. And and so we've got a, a... grueling, arduous summer ahead of us, but we will be uh, relying upon your kindness and your prayers for grace and, and sustaining faith. And I, and I say sustaining faith because uh, it's Mother's Day and I want to pay tribute to the mother of my seven children who has such amazing faith. Even in the, in the face of what is a, a significant setback, right in the midst of a major life transition vocationally to have a major setback and health issue, when she first received the cancer diagnosis, which was the Monday after we announced to the congregation my transition, literally it was that Monday, <laughs> um, she through tears said to me over the phone, because I, was, I wasn't at home when she got the call from the doctor, but she said through tears, this is my invitation for more. This is my invitation for more of God. That's a resiliency of faith and a genuineness of faith that we need the grace of God to continue to sustain, of course, in her through this process, but then in all of us, in me and the kids as well, one of the things you don't want is you don't want a significant challenge like this to, to repel faith in your children, but compel and draw faith out of your children. So we have, um, we have lots of kids, so you're going to need to pray a lot, right? (laughs) 
but pray for God's grace and, and kindness. He will show himself so faithful. I have every confidence. We have every confidence in that. And so, but thank you again for your kindness and, and love towards us as a family. All right. Let's pray because we have a, an amazing passage of Scripture. Did you hear that passage of Scripture read on Mother's Day? Right? That's, that's no joke as a passage. And uh, I'm going to preach it straight, right? Without too much garnish. So it's going to be sober. It's going to be a bit rapid fire. Some observations and some implications. But I hope it's bolstering to your faith and your confidence and, and uh, your hope in Jesus, your love of Jesus. That's the point of this, to fan into flame more and more and more. Your love of Christ on this Mother's Day with this passage that is uh, all about Jesus' family. And so we need God's help. Let me pause, let me pray, and ask for God's grace. Father, we do, we, we cast ourselves upon your grace. We, we throw ourselves at the foot of the cross. We recognize, we're so mindful of the fact that our lives are not in our own hands. None of us has sort of sovereign sway over our own lives. We are, all of our days are numbered and they are numbered according to your sovereign purposes for us. And so we just cast ourselves at your feet. You are God, we are not. You are king, we are subjects. And that's a good place to be as a creature. Pretend like we're the creator, but... To do what creatures ought to do, which is to ask for grace and mercy and help and support, encouragement. And so we do that this morning, even for something that can seem as simple as reading the Bible and hearing a sermon. We pray something spectacular and spiritual would happen in these moments. But it requires your spirit to bring it about. And so we pray that your spirit would bring it about. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have before us um, what is, what looks to be a wonderful passage for Mother's Day because there's no other place in the Bible where in the space of four verses you get four references to mom. To mother and the mention of brothers and sisters. Like this is, seems to be at first blush an ideal family friendly passage so well suited in our series, the timing in our series through Matthew to fall on Mother's Day. What a delightful passage for Mother's Day because it talks about mothers and brothers and sisters and family. And yet, you knew there were yet was coming, right? And yet, when we take a closer look at this passage, it says some sobering stuff. Jesus says some sobering stuff about families. In fact, some shocking stuff about families. Jesus asks a really important question that all of us ought to ask some point in our life. There in verse 48, who is my mother? Look in your Bible and who are my brothers? What a powerful question for all of us to ask. What could shape our identity more than asking that question? Who are we? Who are we connected to most intimately and most deeply? Who is our mother? Who are my brothers? Jesus asked verse 48. But that's not the stinger. The stinger is in his answer to the question. And his answer to the question is there in verse 50 and 
it ought to give us pause. Because it's not exactly what we would expect from gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And if we're honest, it's probably not what any of us would want him to say. Because what he says is such a radical redefinition of the family that it cuts against the grain of our biological nature. Because what he does in redefining the family, listen to this, is he moves in his definition of family, our definition of family from, you might say, biology to ecclesiology. Defining the family... Not genetically, but volitionally, if you will. That is, by virtue of doing the will of God, that your volition matches the volition of God. That's what Jesus says in verse 50. They are my, look there, verse 50, my brother and sister and mother, the ones who do the volition or the will of God. So Jesus here at the end of chapter 12, he is dropping a pretty sober teaching on us. Matthew, including this at this point in his gospel, dropping some sober stuff on us. He's radically redefining the family. And what he says is arresting. What he says is powerful. What he says may be potentially painful for some of us this morning. But what he says is no doubt if we will receive it by faith, life-changing. This is life-changing stuff Jesus is talking about. And what I want to do in the message in light of this small, short, simple, relatively simple passage is just make a couple of observations about the passage. I want to make three observations about the passage and then I want to draw out some lessons, if you will, or some implications of the passage that I hope will be both a challenge and an encouragement to you. And so let's begin with the observations before we get to the lessons or the implications. First, the observations. Three observations. Here's the first one about the place of this passage in the Gospel of Mark. And then observation two and three will be about the content of the passage itself. But the first observation, the placement of the passage in the Gospel of Mark. Matthew has placed this teaching, this radical redefinition of the family, he hasn't just thrown it in here randomly, it comes at a very strategic point in the flow of Matthew's gospel. Notice it is here at the end of of chapter 12, right before the beginning of chapter 13, of course. And what we have in chapters 1 through 12 is Matthew presenting to us who this Christ is, who he is. His identity. Now, beginning at chapter 13, starting next week, what we see is a shift in Matthew's focus. Of course, he's going to still unfold who Jesus is, but the focus in chapter 13 going forward with the parables and teachings about the kingdom of God is who is the church? Who is the church? Who are those who are connected to this Christ? who are part of the kingdom of God, who are part of the children of God. And so notice Matthew very strategically putting a definition of the family of God over against biological families right here at this hinge point in Matthew's gospel. Who is the Christ? To who is the church? And who is connected to this Christ? And he redefines family 
in process of answering that question. And why does he do that? Why does he do that? Well, I think he knows just how powerful an influence our family can be, our biological family. A powerful influence. And a mixed influence, it must be said as well. On the one hand, biological families can be great conduits of the faith, transmitting the faith from one generation to the next. Many of you in the room grew up in a family like that. Your biological family was a wonderful conduit of the Christian faith and love of Jesus into your life. Praise God for that's a marvelous thing. But newsflash, that is not everyone's experience of their biological family. Certainly not globally and certainly not historically. In fact, the biological family can be, yes, a conduit to faith. It can also be, listen to me, an impediment to faith. An impediment to faith. Whereas you try to follow Jesus, what you find is the biological family can be resisting that desire to follow Jesus, subverting your interest in the gospel, and rejecting you if you choose to follow Jesus. That may not be your experience, but that is the experience of millions of Christians throughout church history and all around the world today. Matthew, of course, knows all about this, which is why, no doubt, he places this passage right here at the strategic point in this gospel, a redefinition of how you get connected to this Christ. That's the first observation, the placement of this passage. The next two observations have to do with Simple things that are said in the passage that would be very easy to skip right over, but I think there's a lot of theological heft in these observations, and we're going to draw out the implications from them, but here are the two observations. You can find them right there in your Bible. The first observation, check it out, it has to do with this. Jesus' biological family, you'll note verse 46, look there, is, notice this, standing outside. Jesus is speaking to those who are sitting around his feet inside, but notice what Matthew says, draws attention to Jesus' biological family is standing outside. Verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, notice this is an emphasis for Matthew, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside. It's not a throwaway detail for Matthew. Great significance in the location of his biological family. They aren't inside, and they aren't sitting at the feet of Jesus. Rather, they're outside. And not just outside, but they're standing. Have you ever been to like a concert or a movie or a church service where someone might be standing out in the narthex back there, standing outside? Sometimes that can be for good reasons, like they look around, they can't find a seat, and so they can't get in. But you know what standing outside of something can often mean? That you're on the fence. You're not sure you want to go in. You want to observe, but you're not really fully committed. And so you stand on the outside. Matthew, you see, is presenting Jesus' biological family, his mother and his brothers, as on the fence. Their lives are marked by indecision. Matthew spares us the detail and Mark's more blunt telling of the story where 
The family evidently comes and knocks on the door, and they got to get Jesus because they think Jesus is kind of out of his mind, right? So they got to like, get Jesus and call him back to his senses. Matthew doesn't tell us that. Matthew just makes it very clear. They're standing outside. They're on the fence. There's indecision. They see Jesus. They see their brother Jesus or their son Jesus, and they're like, wow, he's doing a bunch of pretty interesting stuff. We should make sure we go check and observe and see what's going on. But they're on the fence. They're not fully committed. They like the show, but they're not sure they want to buy into discipleship, so they stand outside on the fence. Don't miss that first observation, the biological family standing outside. Very significant for Matthew. Here's the second observation, similarly easy to miss, but very significant. The second observation is this. It comes from verse 49. Look there. Jesus, you see, blesses those who are sitting inside by calling them his true family. Notice what the text says. He stretches out his hand toward his disciples. That's not, listen, that's not a pointing gesture. Hey, who are my brothers and sisters, mothers and brothers and sisters? There they are. It's not a pointing gesture. It's literally, he lifts up his hand over his disciples. It is a blessing gesture. Jesus blesses them with his hand raised over his disciples in a gesture of blessing by calling them his true family. These are the ones that are not on the fence about Jesus. These are the ones that are dialed in. These are the ones that are all in with Jesus. They're not gathering around, hanging around, watching the show. They are dialed in with Jesus, and Jesus blesses them. With his hand held high over their heads, a blessing, saying to them, introducing to his biological family his true family. Very provocative and amazing thing he does. Now, I've often wondered in reading this passage whether Jesus' words here got back to his biological family. Have you ever wondered that? I mean, it wasn't like it was some massive, massive house. I mean, I wonder if they could even see Jesus, hear him saying this. I I even wonder, right? I mean, this is a pretty big room, but if you're back there, you, you could even make eye contact. I wonder if... His mom or brothers made eye contact with him when he said this, when he blessed the disciples over against and in contrast to them who were sitting on the fence. I wonder if they caught any of that. And then I wonder, how did they respond? How did they feel? Were they indignant? Were they offended? Were they cut to the quick, perhaps? Were they called off the fence of indecision and and right then and there made a decision once and for all to surrender their life to Jesus, their brother, Jesus, their son? Of course, the story ends here. We don't know exactly how the rest of the story and the event unfolded, but what we can know is how, listen to me, how we might respond to this powerful and provocative teaching of Jesus. We can control that, how we will respond to the arresting teaching of Jesus in this passage. They help us think about how to respond. Let me draw out now a couple of lessons out of these observations, and 
Let me begin with what I think is the most important, and I want to be crystal clear on this lesson or implication of this passage of Scripture. Let me put it this way. Blood relations, right? Blood relations, relations of biology, blood relations don't save. Only relation to the blood saves. Did you catch that? Blood relations don't save, only relation to the blood saves. The deal is the Christian faith is often transmitted through blood relations. That's a beautiful thing. God has designed the world for the importance of the family, but we can make the mistake of thinking that if our family's Christian, well, then we're related to them by blood, so we must be Christian. But Jesus shatters that. I remember talking once to uh, someone I, d- I didn't really know all that well, and so I was trying to get to know this person, and I was asking him about if he had faith commitments and whether he was a father of Jesus, and, and I remember that he, he, he didn't seem to want to talk about his faith. What he wanted to talk about was how his dad was a preacher and how his mom used to leave Bible studies and how, how his Kids used to go to Christian, went to Christian schools and all the rest of it. It was like he wanted to talk about like the blood relations and their faith and somehow it was like a surrogate for his own faith or lack of faith. Happens all the time. This passage shatters that. Shatters that. John the gospel writer shatters it as well in the opening prologue of his gospel. Do you remember John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13? A, a glorious piece of gospel news but also has some sobering things to say like we find here in our passage where John says this, but to all who receive him, who embrace Jesus by faith, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so let me put it this way. A saving relationship with Jesus, listen to me, particularly young people, a saving relationship with Jesus is not a family inheritance. Mom and dad are not writing that in the will. It is not an heirloom you are going to find in the attic after they're gone and just voila. It is a personal decision that comes by putting your trust in the saving work of Christ on the cross. Blood relations don't save. You are saved by relating your life by faith to the blood of Christ. So get related to the blood of Christ. If you're not already... Embrace the work of Christ on the cross this morning by faith. Connect your life to the blood that saves. The second lesson or implication of this passage is probably going to be just as blunt and pointed, and I'll put it this way. Sitting in a pew on a regular basis doesn't mean you're Sitting inside near Jesus. Sitting in a pew on a regular basis doesn't mean, do you hear me? You're sitting inside near Jesus. 
There are no doubt in a church this size, there are no doubt some who regularly attend this church, but listen to me, you are theologically speaking, biblically speaking, from God's perspective, from Jesus' perspective, you are still standing outside. No doubt there are perhaps some in the congregation who sit on a couch at the small group meeting. Sit in a chair at the Bible study. You sit in a circle with your friends at youth group on Tuesday night. But the reality is, and you may even be aware of this yourself, you are still standing on the outside. You're standing on the outside even though you are sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. I have this very sobering book on my bookshelf. It is called Almost Christian. That's the title, Almost Christian, and it's especially sobering because it is about the faith or the lack of faith of of young adults, teens and young adults in American Christianity. Almost Christian. Almost Christians are young people and young adults, and may I say by extension, anyone who seems Christian, looks Christian, maybe even smells Christian, right? But they're not full-blooded Christians. That is with real, genuine, saving faith. Instead, as the author of Almost Christians says, they instead worship at the church of benign whateverism and submit their life to, quote, the cult of nice. And so they kind of look Christian in our sort of mushy Christian subculture and world, secular world that's not sure what it even means to be a Christian as long as you're nice and believe in whateverism, that probably is okay. They're observers of Jesus, but they're not real followers of Jesus. And what is the difference, according to this passage, between an observer of Jesus who stands on the outside and a follower of Jesus sitting on the inside? What is the difference? The difference is the one on the inside wants to do and does the will of God. That's the difference. They intend to learn from Jesus so that they can follow Jesus. That's the difference. Those standing on the outside, they might want to observe the teaching, to listen to the teaching of Jesus, and that's kind of interesting, and isn't Jesus kind of cool and interesting, and I learned a few things, and that sort of all is kind of interesting, but there's no real desire to submit to the sovereign lordship of Jesus. That's the difference. And so I think it's worth asking ourselves, it's worth asking yourself, what are, what is your real intention in being here this morning? I mean, really. And even though you're all sitting in the pews this morning, are some of you still standing outside? Are you here because you like the good feelings, the afterglow of a church service? Or do you want to know the will of God so that you can do the will of God? Ask yourself, that honest question, and be honest with yourself in answering that question. 
Now, this second observation leads to a third observation, or excuse me, implication, a lesson. It is this. The family of faith, listen to me, the family of faith is ultimately marked, marked out in this world, not by church attendance or baptism or certain doctrinal beliefs, though those are important, right? Don't hear me say church attendance, baptism, or doctrinal beliefs are unimportant. That's not what I'm trying to say. But they are not ultimately marked out by those things, but by doing the will of God. That's the decisive thing. And so Jesus says this, verse 49 and 50, here in a blessing, here are my mother and brothers. Look there in verse 50 with me so you don't just take my word for it. You see it in the word. Look there, verse 50. For whoever goes to church regularly, for whoever got baptized when they were a kid, for whoever, like has orthodox theology. That's not what it says. For whoever, listen, Protestant evangelicals are getting nervous about the will of God and doing it. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's how they're marked out in the world. Doing the will of God. Not perfectly. Nobody's, oh, I think you said you had to be perfect. It's not all what I'm saying. You intended to, you organized your life around, you submit under the authority of God's word to do the will of God, your heavenly Father. You don't do the will of God to earn a place in God's family, you do the will of God as an expression of being a son, of course, or a daughter of God. That's how that works. And so young people in particular, but perhaps others, I mean, don't let there be any ambiguity if you leave here this morning about like, well, I kind of wonder what it means to like follow Jesus. I mean, like at church, I got to fill out that welcome register, and they're probably praying for me, and I, maybe that's what it means to follow Jesus. Or like, they took up an offering, maybe that's what it means to follow. I mean, don't, no ambiguity. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be part of the family of faith, the family of God? Not to stand outside as an onlooker, but to come inside, sit at the feet of Jesus, to learn the way of Jesus, to do the way of Jesus and the will of Jesus. Here's a fourth implication and lesson. Sitting comes before doing. Sitting comes before doing. Some of us want to do and not waste our time with the sitting stuff. But to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, requires sitting at the feet of Christ to learn from Christ before you go out to serve Christ. Sitting comes before doing. If you want to see a gospel illustration of that principle, check out the story of Martha and Mary. You may know that story. Martha, Mary, Jesus comes over, they're having dinner at Martha and Mary's house, and Martha's running around, hustling and bustling, doing a ton of stuff, and, and she's kind of annoyed that Mary's in the living room, sitting with all the other folks at the feet of Jesus as a learner from Rabbi Jesus. That's what she's doing there. Martha's a bit incensed, and Jesus gently rebukes her, because sitting has to come before doing. You've got to adopt the humble posture of the learner 
before you embrace the faithful posture of the servant. Sit at the feet of Jesus by engaging his word, consuming the Bible, and by hearing from Jesus through prayer. Sit under the authority of Jesus as a learner, then you will be able to serve with his power as a disciple. Sitting comes before doing. Two more lessons, and then we'll be done. The fifth lesson or implication is this. Some of you already know this implication, this lesson. You've learned it, may I say, the hard way. But I mention it here because it often catches people off guard and sometimes unsettles their faith, perhaps not in other parts of the world where the Christian faith is under persecution, but perhaps here in the West, in the post-Christian West. And the implication and the lesson is this. Jesus' radical redefinition of the family here, this radical redefinition of the family, listen, often brings with it costly consequences. Costly consequences. If you choose to sit at the feet of Jesus on the inside as one of his disciples, what that may mean for at least some of you is this. You will find yourself now on the outside of your biological family. So you can stay on the inside with the biological family and on the fence as an outsider with a family of faith. Or if you submit to the authority of Jesus and design your life to do the will of God as expressed through Jesus, you move to the inside of the family of faith in the feet of Jesus, and you will find yourself, voila, on the outside of your biological family. And that, as some of you know, comes with costly consequences. That's the painful reality. And Matthew knows all about that, and Jesus certainly knows all about that because it has to do with fundamental allegiance. And so Matthew records Jesus teaching this a little bit earlier in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. I mean, listen to Jesus meek and mild and what he says. This is amazing. Do not think, Jesus says, I have come to... I mean, I, what, what was the tone of his voice when he said this to his disciples? And did they catch what he was saying? Some of them did. They'd already experienced the costly consequences of it. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth, Jesus says. Huh? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword sword? Like, what are you chopping? What are you cutting, Jesus? For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whew. My lips are too messed up. I can't whistle. <laughs> That's no joke. And then Jesus adds, this is a kind of warning because he knows, like, everybody's going to be like, oh, come on, that's, that's, that's crazy. That's, I'm, I'm not doing that bit. And he anticipates this. Some of you may be thinking that right now. You're thinking, I like all this Jesus stuff, but I'm not so sure about that sword and dividing up and enemies in my own house kind of thing. I'm just not, I'm not doing that stuff. 
So Jesus says, verses 37, 8, and 9, right after that, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. You try to hang on to life, you will lose it. And whoever loses his life, it's like, I just lost my life, all this stuff happened to me. Jesus says, for my sake, you will find life. You will find life. And so becoming a follower of Jesus, moving to the inside, sitting at the feet of Jesus, it comes with a cost. And the cost can feel so huge that it feels, listen to me, like you are losing your very life. Catch that? It can be so weighty, so excruciating, so alienating, so ostracizing, so humiliating, that it can feel like you are hanging on a cross. Or as Jesus says, that you've taken up your cross. And so there are often, and it's certainly been the majority of cases in the history of the church, costly consequences to Jesus' radical redefinition of family. But this sobering observation leads, I want you to hear, leads to a final observation, a more encouraging observation, it is this. Please hear me on this one. Whatever the sword of discipleship cuts away of our biological family, you hear that? Whatever the sword of discipleship cuts away of our biological family, the grace of the gospel replaces with our ecclesial family. Whatever loss of family we experience because of following Jesus, it will be replaced by gaining the family of faith. And so listen, brother or sister, who is having a tough go at this, who is experiencing the sword and the cost, the consequences, the costly consequences and cost of discipleship following Jesus here, this hope-giving promise of Jesus from Matthew's own gospel, chapter 19, verses 28 and 29, where he says this, truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, saying this to you, brothers and sisters, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And listen, brothers and sisters, everyone, Jesus says, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Just throw in eternal life as well, right? It's not bad. A hundredfold. And so here's the bottom line. Here's the gospel good news. I don't want this to be a downer. Like we went to Mother's Day service at Calvary and all he did was rail on the biological family. I don't even think I'm supposed to like my mom anymore. <laughs> That's not the point, right? Here's the bottom line. Here's the gospel news. You can never outgive God. Let me put it more concretely. You can never out-sacrifice Jesus. God's grace in Jesus will always triumph. Whatever the sacrifice is, he triumphs over it and returns it to you a hundredfold. 
So the cost of following Jesus outside of biological family into the family of faith and the loss that you experience, he is going to replenish that. It's not going to be a vacancy for all eternity. He will replenish that. In this life, through the ecclesial family of faith, what we call the church, then in the life to come, with life eternal, forever and ever and ever and ever. One last thing I want to say, this is free with the sermon. One last thing I want to say this morning. The Bible and Jesus, please hear me, is not down on the family. It's not down on the biological family. The Bible's just really up on Jesus. So, listen to me. Love your mama, right? Honor and respect and love and esteem your biological family. Serve and all the rest of it. But love and honor and serve and esteem Jesus more. That's all I got to say this morning. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you that you are our good, good Father. So we're going to sing in just a minute. Not nary fairy, not abstractions, but good, good Father who gave his Son on a bloody cross for our salvation. That's goodness. That's humility. That's love and that is life to us. And the difficult places in this life that is life to us, that is life eternal, world without end, splendor and glory and majesty forever and ever and ever and ever. We long for that day. We long for that day. May we be faithful to you, Lord Jesus. May you be honored by our lives. And may we love you with everything that we have, all that you've given to us. For we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.